Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor David. A group of us were in Atlanta last week, and we arrived last night. It was 70 degrees. And you come back to 22 degrees last night, and it was a shocker. So, um, well, we are continuing our sermon series from the book of James. So if you would open, up your, open your Bibles, please, to James chapter 4. Uh, and I will be covering uh, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. So James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. And if you are using the church Bible, we call it the blue Bible. You will find that on page 1291. 1291. So, out of curiosity, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, and if you are uncomfortable, please don't do it. This is not a test or quiz or identifying people or anything like that, uh, just so that you could get a picture of you know, what our congregation is. So, the first question is, how many of you are list makers, meaning that you wake up in the morning and you have a list of things to do. And at the end of the day, you cross them off. And let's say your list did not have something and you have done it. You will write it again and then cross it off. Let's see who, how many of you are like that. Okay, there I go. I am one of those. Okay. How many of you are business owners, small business owners? Anybody in the congregation? I see a few hands. Good. How many of you work for businesses that try to make a profit? Okay. Is there anybody left? (laughs) And then here's another one that I wanted to talk about. If you raise your hand, the sermon this morning is for you. Because James has some very specific things to tell people who are planners and list makers, people who are business owners, people who make work for businesses that try to make a profit. And then the final one is people who are materially wealthy. Okay. Now, I want to make a case here. There are always exceptions to anything that I say. So I want to be very careful in saying this. But in the United States of America represents about 5% of the world population. But we consume about 25% of world's resources. And you see those pie charts. And it's disproportionate. As a result, the United States remains the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth. You know that. And I know that. It's probably not a surprise. The median household income in the United States last year was about $50,000. So if you made $50,000 or so in in 2016, your income would be better than 99% of the world population. So you are among the top 1%. Now, if you made $10,000 per year last year, which is the poverty line income, here in the United States, you would be better than 84% of the world population. In other words, you're among the top 16%. 
So again, there are exceptions. Somebody might be in the 84% here in our congregation and also in our community in the region and in the United States. We want to acknowledge that. And James had very specific instructions on how to take care of them. And so we will talk about that as well. But the point is that we are, materially speaking, we are among the wealthiest people on the face of the earth. And James has something to say to us. And that's what the scripture text is all about this morning. So let's dive in. And I want to do them in two sections. I want to do chapter 4 first. It's one section, verses 13 through 17. And then we'll get into the chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, as the second section. So, James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now in these verses, James is addressing merchants of the day who traveled around the Mediterranean Sea pursuing business endeavors. And so for example, on the big screen, you will see a picture of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a major trade route during James's time, as it enabled merchants to travel to Europe in the north, Asia to the east, Africa to the south, and then into the Atlantic Ocean and going around in the west. So it was a major trade route. Further, the climate was good. Year-round, it was most like summer, If there's any winter at all, it's mild and rainy. And that's about it. So as a result, travel was less dangerous. And therefore, a lot of trade was happening. And in these verses, James is addressing those merchants who travel around the Mediterranean Sea on business. Now, if you carefully note note in these verses, these merchants have carefully thought through every detail of their trip. They have made the list. For example, how, when they would travel, and they say, today or tomorrow. They have thought through where they would travel to such and such a city. They have made their list. And they have, they have made the list of how long they would stay there. It says there they would spend a year there. And they have even thought about what is that they would do. They would buy and sell. They would trade and make a profit. And the goal, of course, at the end goal is to make a profit. See, they have thought through carefully the what and the why and the how and who, where and when. In all of these questions that we ask... They have carefully thought through, made their list, 
travel plans and all of those have been made, carefully made. Just like us today. So here's the question. Is such careful planning about the future or making a profit from our business endeavors wrong? Is that what James is saying here? See, for example, when I went to bed last night, I set up the alarm clock so that I can wake up early in the morning and come to church on time. Is that wrong? Sure, as James says, my life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In other words, when I set up the alarm clock last night, I did not know if I would wake up this morning, alive this morning. Yet, I did set up the alarm clock. Is that wrong? Is that what James is saying here? See, I admitted that I'm a list maker, so I carefully plan my day so that I can be effective and efficient each and every day. And perhaps some of you do that too. Is that wrong? Is that what James is saying in this passage? Several of you travel on businesses and you make your travel arrangements months in advance. A chief reason might be to get cheaper airline tickets. You did that even though you did not know if you would be alive on the date of your travel. Is that wrong? Is that what James is saying? Now many of you are working for businesses that exist to make profit. That's the bottom line. And some of you have your own businesses and you work hard day in and day out to make a profit. Is that wrong? Is that what James is saying? I believe James's answer to all of those questions is no. Because I don't see in these passages, in this passage or in the entire epistle or even in the entire Bible, anywhere planning about the future being criticized. So the question comes, what exactly is that James is criticizing about? What is it that he's criticizing here? And I think the answer is actually found in verses 15 through 17. And he said, instead you ought to say, if the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That's the criticism. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Strong words. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Those are the three verses, 15, 16, and 17, that contain the criticism and not the ones that preceded those verses. So, what are the criticisms here? Is it that these merchants did not 
utter those words if the Lord's will, we will do this or that? Is that what it's all about? In other words, every time that we plan something about the future, we have to say, Lord willing, if the Lord's will. In fact, <laughs> this past week, you know, I, I, I did get an email about something, and this, uh, this person, for the first time, I think, we have communicated you know, long, uh, long, you know, over, the, over the years, and for the first time, you know, the email said, Lord willing. And I said to myself, this person must have read the sermon text for this coming week. But here again, I would answer, no, that's not what James is criticizing. And this takes a lot of study in the Bible and the New Testament. And I, I thought about going through some of the verses, but in the end I decided not to do it because it would obviously take time. So I'm going to quote a commentary here because people who have studied this, and here's a commentary that says, they have studied Jesus, they have studied Paul, they have studied other apostles and have come to the conclusion, here it is, Jesus, Paul, and other apostles do not always state this condition when they plan for the future. And there are Bible verses. If you, if you want to look up some Bible verses, send me an email, I'll give those to you. Sometimes they have said that, and other times they have not. And the commentary continues, James attributes no magical significance to the words themselves. Rather, he wants us to adapt the attitude expressed by these words as a fixed perspective from which to view all life. That's what is important. It is the attitude that was criticized. It was not a promotion of these words. You know, go ahead and use this formula every time that you plan for the future. Now, this past week, a friend of mine posted the following on his Facebook page. And here it is. I, it was timely. It says, if you think your alarm clock, it is your alarm clock that wakes you up every morning. Try putting it next to a corpse and understand the grace of God. It did not, it's, it's not the alarm clock that woke me up this morning. It was the grace of God that woke me up and brought me here. It is not the alarm clock that woke all of you up this morning. It was the grace of God that woke you up and gave you an opportunity to live and worship him this day. That's what that means. So don't feel compelled to say every time that you plan for the future or something that I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. That's not what it is. It's a heart issue. But then, the other criticism is found in uh, uh, verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. I think that's where the criticism lies. You boast in your arrogance. Verse 16. You see this boastful arrogance. If you, if you study that in a Greek word a little deeper. It's actually a bad sense of. Or over the top self-glorying. That's what it is. In contrast to glorifying God. And we are going to talk about what it means to glorify God. 
Secondly, it is a sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency that does not acknowledge our dependence on God for daily sustenance. It does not acknowledge God as the one who directs our lives. It does not acknowledge God as the one who determines how long we would live on this earth. And it does not acknowledge God as the one who gives any success that we may achieve in business or in life. That's what boastful arrogance is all about. And James says, all such boasting is evil. Very strong words, evil. Now then he goes on to say, in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Evil has been used, now here is sin. So the question that we could ask is, what exactly is this right thing that he's talking about? Again, we need to study that statement in its context. And so what exactly is that he's talking about? And again, based on what I have said, based on boastful arrogance, or you boast in your arrogance, the right thing to do is to glorify God instead of glorifying self. The right thing to do is to rely on God and his sufficiency instead of being self-reliant and self-sufficient. Those are the right things and the wrong things to do. And this is sometimes referred to as, you know, sin of omission. That is, we know what the right thing to do, but we fail to do it. We sin by omission. So let's, let's talk about, it's easy to throw out these words, you know, glorify God and, you know, this and that and, what exactly do they mean? What does it mean to glorify God with our lives? What does it mean to express our reliance on God, our sufficiency in God? Now, there are lots of ways to do that, but I'm going to look at just one particular aspect this morning. One of the things that God says is that is to worship him for who he is in his splendor. Acknowledging who he is. He is sovereign. He is the creator. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He controls everything. Nothing happens without his knowledge. That's our God. And having known all of that, worship him. That glorifies God. Now, there are other ways of doing it by serving and in all of those different things, but let's focus on the aspect of worship. Now, then Jesus came along and said this in John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, let me give you a definition of what worship is. Worship is 
Worship of God is, is a spiritual pursuit that is enabled or empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and guided by the Word of God. That's what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot even call Jesus Lord, the Bible says. We cannot even worship God. And truth, of course, is the word of God. And therefore, I define worship as a spiritual pursuit that is empowered or enabled by the Spirit of God and guided by the word of God. Now, having said that, let's go back to these merchants who had made their list. Wherever they were going, when they will go, what, how long will they spend, what they will be doing, you know, all of that had been taught through. Where was the spiritual pursuit? As a result, I could ask the question, where was, was worship of God? Because worship of God is a spiritual pursuit. Where is that? For example, you know, again, you, you look through all of those and see, you know, they had planned everything about their business, but there was nothing about how they will, I'm going to give you some examples, how they will set aside time to worship God. Study and meditate upon his word. Or attend a Christian fellowship while being away from home. Nothing. There's nothing about how they will keep themselves sexually pure during their year-long trip to pagan cities that practiced ritual prostitution. Think about that. We commissioned a team to Gulu. You know how the AIDS spread? Men went to work to faraway places, engaged in prostitution, came back home after a year-long stay or six-month stay or whatever that was, and they had sex with their wives, and in the process gave them AIDS, who in turn gave their kids. That's how the AIDS spread. These, so these, in those days when Christianity was still in the early stages, everywhere they went, they were all pagan cities practicing temple prostitution, ritual prostitution. And these merchants had no plans. There's at least from the Bible what James is talking about, there was no such plan. They had not thought through. There's nothing about how they will be Christian witnesses, salt and light, to the many unbelievers or pagans that they would encounter in those pagan cities. In other words, if the part of the plan said, you know, I, I'm going to trade with these people, these are pagans, and I'm going to talk about Jesus Christ, who actually had risen from the dead some 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And there's nothing about how they will honor Christ in their businesses as they buy and sell to make a profit. You and I know there are right ways of doing business and there are wrong ways of doing business. There was nothing of that sort that is described. That's what James was criticizing. The spiritual pursuit was missing. 
for these wealthy merchants, or these merchants who claim to be Christians, the desire to succeed in business and make a profit has become such a towering priority that it has overshadowed everything else, including their spiritual pursuit of worshiping God. So, let's ask ourselves, especially some of you who might be traveling on business. Do you carefully think about and plan for how you will keep your devotional life during business travels? Now, in those days, you actually had to carry a Bible. Nowadays, you know, your iPhone might have the Bible up, up there and you could, you, know, you could do that. But do you carefully plan how you would keep your devotional life during business travels? Do you, in other words, do you have a time set aside? I will wake up in this particular time every day while I'm away for a week or two weeks or whatever that might be. And I will read the Bible and I will spend time praying half hour, one hour. What, do you think through that? Do you carefully think about and plan for how you will keep yourself holy? Sexually pure, for one thing, during your business travel. Do you do that? I used to have a friend. I, I, he's still a friend of mine. When, he's on, uh, he was, uh, when he was on business, actually, every day he would call his wife to touch base and, and to tell her about all that had happened that day. And I'm ready to go to sleep. I just called you. Just one plan. It's not the only plan. But do you carefully plan to keep yourself holy during your business travels? Do you carefully think about and plan for how you will be a salt and like light among the non-Christians you, are, you would encounter in your business? Do you carefully think about and plan for how you will conduct your business transactions in a God-honoring manner? Those are the things that James is talking about here. It is God's will that his people would worship him. It is a spiritual pursuit. Therefore, as we are planning, making our lists regarding our, our businesses and all jobs and all of those different things, how much time do we spend thinking about spiritual pursuits? That's what James is encouraging us to do in this passage. Pursue spiritual things. Just as you pursue other things in life. Because God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in truth and in spirit. Are we cool? All right. Now let's move to James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. James begins with the same words. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are 
eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which, keep, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now here in these verses, whereas previously he spoke to merchants who were traveling on business. And here he's speaking to landowners and who happen to be rich. By the way, in a sermon that I preached, may have been a month or a month and a half ago, I think, I said, you know, most of these passages are not about rich versus poor. Because even in this one, you know, we, have, we might have the tendency to focus on the word rich and kind of get squeezy about those things. This is not that rich. Look at the four accusations. These, these people happen to be rich, and they are landowners, but rich plus their practice of accumulating wealth by cheating workers. So these are not just rich people. These are rich people who accumulated wealth by cheating their workers, and we read that in James chapter 5, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So again, this is not a rich versus poor issue. It is about rich people who have these additional characteristics. Second, their practice of accumulating wealth by condemning and murdering innocent men, men who have no power to resist them. That's found in verse 6. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And I'm going to give you an explanation when I get to the third point here. The third point is this one. Their practice of hoarding wealth and doing nothing to alleviate the suffering of the poor around them. And you find that in verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-ridden. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. What's happening is this. You know, these are landowners, so they hire people to work. These are poor people. And at the end of the day, and at the end of the day's work, they will get their wages. And so they, will usually, they usually would stand in line and get their salary in a day's wage and go home. On their way home, they might buy some food if they were in the market or something. Not, no supermarkets, of course, in the marketplace where agricultural products and whatever else was there. And then they would go home and they will cook. And whatever they earned that day, it's gone. And they will do the same thing next day and next day and so on. So imagine that these people came at the end of the, end of the work day and stood in line and the, and the employee said... You're not going to pay you today. And so they went home. No money. No food. And therefore the family went hungry. And if this happened repeatedly over and over again, 
they died of hunger. That's what this murdering is about. Children, pregnant women, moms and dads, they died. So they accumulated their wealth by cheating their workers. And then they hoarded their wealth without doing any help whatsoever. And then the fourth thing that he's, he's accusing the, these wealthy people of, again, wealthy plus, okay? So this, again, this is not a rich versus poor issue. I'll come back and give you some examples. I mean, I mean, wealthy people are doing some wonderful things in this world, including in our congregation. But this is wealthy plus some additional characteristics. And the fourth characteristic that you see here is their self-indulgent lifestyles. Verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. It's the self-indulgent lifestyle. So, so again, they are, wealth, they are wealthy, all right, but they accumulated the wealth, the cheating, their workers, and then not paying them, in some cases, by the way, here's another thing too. When, when, when the workers came in and they, uh, they filed a case against them or something like that, and they went to court, and these wealthy people bribed the judges to ensure the judges ruled in favor of them and not of these poor workers. And some people were actually put in prison because they had filed a court case against these wealthy people. And some people were killed. Those are the kinds of things that James is condemning here, not the wealth itself, but rather he is condemning their illegal and oppressive ways of accumulating wealth and their sinful ways of using that wealth. So, let me apply that for us today. Again, this is why I said, are you a business owner? Small business, large business? Do you work for a business that exists to make profit? That's not what he's condemning here. So know this, the application point, the accumulating wealth is not a crime in and of itself. But earn it in an honest way, without cheating anyone or any system. That's what is important. Second, if you are a business owner, make sure that you don't cheat your workers in any way. They are deserving of your fair treatment, including fair wages, wages for the work that they have done for you. Here at Midland Free, by the way, we do benchmarking with churches of our size for every position that we have to make sure that we are paying our staff fairly. 
Third, use your wealth to alleviate the suffering of the poor. The oppressed, the widows, the orphans of the world today. Do you know more than 50% of the world population lives on less than $2.50 a day? A Starbucks coffee costs more than that. One in seven in the world today has not enough food to eat. In Democratic Republic of Congo, it's a country in Africa, 76% of the people have not enough food to eat each day. Think about that. If we are 100 people, 76 of, of us would not have enough food to eat. Likelihood of going hungry today. In our hemisphere, Haiti has the highest percentage of people who go hungry each day. It stands at 58% of Haitians will go hungry today. One in seven in the world today lack access to safe, clean drinking water. Many, including children, die as a result of waterborne diseases. In fact, several years ago, this congregation was generous. We raised about $110,000 to build clean water wells in Gulu, Uganda. Here's another one. Women make up 70% of the poor in the world today. 65% of the illiterates and 80% of the sex trafficking industry and 80% of the refugees in the world today. Those are the realities. In light of these realities, the question therefore is this one. As the wealthiest Christians living in the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth, how do we live? That's the question. And James says, live simply, not self-indulgently. That's his fourth point. Again, I couldn't tell you what that means. You're going to have to decide that between you and God. I couldn't give you an example of what that means. But let me simply quote from a book a friend of mine wrote some 25 years ago, Paul Bothwick, whom I succeeded as missions pastor in the former church that I come from. The book is called 101 Ways to Simplify Your Life. And he wrote it 25 years ago. And here it is. We live in the West, part of the RMC block. Rich, 
materialistic countries. In our world, our expectations about possessions and comforts have increased to a point that want has become need. Luxury has become necessity. Optional features have become standard equipment. And even if we don't need it, we can justify anything by waiting until it goes on sale. So, you know, I can say some principles here determine whether something is a want or a need. If something is a luxury or a necessity. Or something is an optional feature or a standard equipment. Right? In fact, at this conference that I went to I, during dinner time on, on uh, Friday night, I sat next to a person who was a missionary to Thailand in Chiang Mai, Thailand, uh, with an organization called Pioneers. And he came back home after a year. And uh, it turned out, you know, when I was teaching in the university, the dean of the School of Engineering was actually the head of the candidate development. So he ended up, that's how we ended up talking about this. And so I asked him, why did he come back? David? There are so many things in this country I take it for granted. I went there, they were not there. A washing machine wasn't there. Air conditioning wasn't there. And he started listing all of those things and he said, you know what, I could, I could have faked this for about a week or two, maybe even a month, but I couldn't fake it for a year. So I came home. So here's the challenge. Again, Paul Worthy concludes by saying this to us. Christians are supposed to live differently than this. James says that. Paul Worthy says that. Others are saying it. And here's it. I love this quote. Live more simply that others may simply live. So I want to provide you with an opportunity to respond. Again, earlier you heard, Glue Team will be going in about a week or so, this week actually. Give some things that would be useful for your kid that you're sponsoring so that he or she might simply laugh. We have adopted, as you know, North Midland Family Center. There are four people among us. Some of them making $10,000 and less below the poverty line. And they are here in Midland. North Midland Family Center is one of those that works among them. And you have been generous in providing financial assistance and all of that. Here is one thing that we are asking. This Easter, we want to deliver food baskets to these homes. In other words, you get to visit these homes and deliver food baskets. And the Go Local team is looking for 25 individuals or 25 families 
or 25 small groups. We don't want a bigger group to go there and, you know, knock at their door. A small group of people, however that you want to do it. Go and experience their homes. And see what it looks like. Do you know that here in Midland, in Midland County, people have no hardwood floors in some homes? That's what, those are the kinds of things that James is calling Christians at his time to do. Live differently. Such that your God and my God will be honored and glorified and lifted up for others to see and experience. So if you are interested in being one of those 25 Go and see Tom Steele, who will be waiting for us there in one of those tables, and sign up and get to know some of these poor people personally. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your blessings in our lives, Lord. And there are so many and so much. And Father, help us to live simply so that others may simply live. And you have given opportunities here in, the, in, in our neighborhood, and you have given us such opportunities overseas as well. So help us to live in such a way that we truly bring honor and glory to your great name. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.